church.
great friend of mine. We developed a really good relationship. Him and his wife are beautiful people. He actually directed the band for um, the National Army um, band and just crazy story and uh, anxious to get to know him more. But his name is Jim. And he came over the day on his 10 speed that his wife had bought him in 1977. And he's probably around, I'd say 70, early 70s. And uh, this beat old, beat up old Huffy bike, 10 speed, skinny tires. And he came in to the shop and I was working in there for about an hour. Just, hey, you want a cup of coffee? And, oh yeah, so he just sat for about an hour and just talked. And uh, he was telling me story after story. And, his wife struggling a little bit with uh, congestion in her chest and different things, so I had a chance to pray with him. And uh, one thing that the common core of that conversation has that we were thankful that we were saved. That even though there's a lot of things that are happening in our nation, a lot of things that are happening in the world, and I know the news can bombard us and it can really depresses pretty quick if you turn it on. But one thing I know is that my God holds me in the palm of his hand. One thing I know is that I'm saved and I have a hope that one day I'm going to be reigning with Jesus up in heaven and knowing that this world is not my home that we're just passing through. Aren't you thankful for that? Amen. Amen. Sinner sing in my 
forsake us. Father, we honor your presence this morning, and we worship you in your name. And everyone said, amen. Turn on at you and say, I am thankful that I am saved this morning. Amen. commonly used word around here. I hope my football team wins the Super Bowl. I hope Johnny asked me to prom. I hope it snows today so I don't have to go to school. I hope I get that job. I get that raise. I pass the test. I score the winning point. I get the car. I don't have to kiss Ann Hilga at Thanksgiving more seriously. I hope my friend gets better. I hope I do something great with my life. I hope one day there's world peace. Hope. We say it and we hear it all the time and I don't want to trivialize it or disregard the aforementioned, but honestly, those are temporary things and they're uncertain at best. It's not that they aren't real or that they're wrong, but let's be honest, if your team doesn't win, Johnny doesn't ask you to prom, if it doesn't snow, you don't get that job or the raise or pass the test. If you don't get the car and Ann Hilka happens to smack a big wet one on you, you're going to get through it. And even if your friend doesn't get better, you don't do something great with your life, and even, even if there's never world peace, all of the outcomes are uncertain, and whether they happen or not, the way you want doesn't really change much in the grand scheme of things because it's all temporary. In the grand scheme of eternity, temporary hopes seem frivolous. See, hope in all the above scenarios is nothing more than a wish, like crossing your fingers, closing your eyes, and saying out loud, I hope I get that raise, I hope I get that raise, I hope I get that raise, is actually going to make a difference. I mean, you don't know what's actually going to happen at all, right? Yet we wish. We click our ruby heels together, we rub the rabbit's foot and avoid walking under ladders and all that, and we slowly open our eyes to see if the wish came true. Well, let me make a quick distinction. There are things we all hope for in the wishing sense, and then there are things we place our hope in. So, can we really call uncertain, confidence-lacking, rolling the dice, closing your eyes, ruby-clicking, rabbit-foot-rubbing, wishful-thinking hope? Is that what hope is all about? And can we really place our hope in looks, or fame, or money, or power? Shouldn't true hope, ultimate hope, eternal hope be based on truth, facts, something more than a wish, something I can know, be certain of, be confident in? I mean, if that kind of hope exists, then it can change us, encourage us, remove fear, relieve doubt, give us strength and get us through anything, give meaning and purpose to everybody, help us love more, understand more, forgive more, accept more, and it can inspire us to share the source of said hope to anybody and everybody. If that kind of hope exists, it changes everything. So does it exist? Yes, and I'll be blunt, it's only found in Jesus Christ because he is the way, the hope, and the life. All other hope is temporary, uncertain, wishful thinking at best. Oh, come on. What if I hope that every little thing's gonna be all right, or we all just become non-existent when we die, or that I'll get to heaven because I, I lived a good life? Well, rub the rabbit's foot and roll the dice, Jimmy. Those are uncertain wishes based on flimsy guesses. First Timothy 2.5.6 declares, there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. John 3.16 states, whoever believes in him, that is Jesus, should not perish but have everlasting life, which is why Paul confidently wrote in Ephesians 1.18 and 19, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Without Christ, we are still dead in our trespasses and separated from God, which makes us godless and wicked. And Job chapter 27 verse 8 says, For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off, when God takes away his life? Without Christ, there is no real hope, period. So do me a favor and finish this sentence. I place all my hope in blank. If Jesus isn't in that blank, you have no hope. That pretty much covers it, folks, and I think we can safely say that this thought, this concept, this idea that you can have true hope without God has been debunked. Adios. in conclusion, <laughs> if you got a half of that, you did better than I did. Hope. How many are glad that we are people of hope? Amen. We're people of hope. 
I, I promise to not talk about this a lot, but you're fully aware that COVID uh, guidelines are changing and uh, we'll be making some changes as we follow that. And one of the changes we'll be making this morning, so I don't have to announce it at the end of the service, you can leave whenever you want. <laughs> We're not doing right to left anymore, okay? You can do whatever you want to do. And uh, if you leave during the service, that doesn't count. That's not what I'm referring to. I'm talking about after the benediction, all right? We've been talking about community, koinonia, sharing life together and living life together. And First John calls us to biblical koinonia, more than just seeing one another and greeting one another, but doing life together. And when you do life together rightly, chapter 1 says, we'll experience the fullness of joy. Chapter 2 tells us that it will produce in us perfected love because both joy and love to be fully experienced have to be experienced in the context of community. Chapter 3 then tells us that as we live life together, not only will we experience the fullness of joy and the perfection of love, we'll find a purified hope, a hope that is bigger and different than what this world offers. Website called Psych Central says that there are seven different kinds of hope that people experience in this world. Describes inborn hope that children are born with a basic disposition to hope for good things to come. There's chosen hope. When you hope that something will work, treatment for a disease, I hope will work. That's a chosen hope. Then there's borrowed hope. When you hope for something good because someone you trust also believes in that, you have hope because they have hope. There's bargainer's hope. Many Christians fall into this trap. If I do this, then this will happen. God, if I do this, then I know that you will respond. Then there's unrealistic hope. Teens believe that they'll be the next Kobe Bryant <laughs> or president of the United States. Then there's false hope, chain letters that promise money or chain letters that promise healing. I love the meme that said uh, Jesus is standing in heaven and says to the person at the door, you can't come in because you didn't forward that last letter I sent. <laughs> False hope. And then there's a mature hope, not based on outcomes, but based on meaning. Things are worthwhile regardless of how they turn out. Martin Luther, Jr., Martin Luther King Jr. said it this way. The long arm of history bends toward justice. I really wish that this generation understood the precepts and principles that he stood for and lived for and began to implement those. But he said the long arm of history bends toward justice. That's an expression of hope. But there's an eighth kind that Psych Central doesn't deal with, and that's biblical hope. It's described in Scripture as a living hope. We have a better hope. Hope is an anchor for the soul. It's blessed, it's good, and it's steadfast. And in 1 John chapter 3, that hope that John writes about is the hope that Jesus is coming back. That's the blessed hope of the believer, that Jesus is coming back. We look forward to that with our confidence in his return. Listen to what it says in chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Dear 
dear friends, now are we the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. He's saying that if you're looking for Jesus to come, have that pure hope in you, it will purify you, which will give you a purified hope. Does that make sense? It is our hope, and that hope is pure. When it's in you, it will purify you, and your hope will be pure. How does that, what does that have to do with community? Hoping for the Lord's return. Well, the author of Hebrews says it this way in a parallel text, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. He's talking in reverse order about the return of the Lord and how important it is that the body gather together in community and in looking forward to the Lord's return, gathering together in community will help us hold fast to our hope. There's a direct relationship between healthy community among believers and the hope that we hold to as we look for Jesus to return. It's a purifying hope. Community is vitally important. There was a movie that was produced a few years ago in 1999. How many of you were not on the planet in 1999? Let me see your hands. You children. It was a movie about an event from a book that was written in 1994 called The Straight Story. And if you see that movie, The Straight Story, it's about a man named Alvin Strait who had a brother that lived in Wisconsin. Alvin uh, lived in Wisconsin. So or Alvin Strait lived in um, Iowa and his brother Lyle lived in Wisconsin. They were estranged. They had separated community from each other. Well, Alvin's brother Lyle had a stroke, and Alvin wanted to go see him. But because of the weakness of his vision and the weakness of his legs, he couldn't get a license. So he took off from Iowa to drive to Wisconsin on a garden tractor, five miles an hour, pulling a trailer with a tent on the back so that he could sleep. Its maximum speed was five miles an hour. I don't know if you remember that story. It's a great Iowa story. And he takes off and he goes a few miles when the tractor, garden tractor breaks down. Not a big tractor, a little John Deere garden tractor breaks down. And so he's able to get help and they put it on a trailer and drives it back to his farm. And in true Iowa fashion, when he gets back to the farm and they unload the tractor, the garden tractor. He goes in the house and gets his shotgun and shoots the tractor. <laughs> That's my favorite part of the story. So he gets another tractor and uh, money's raised to help him. I don't know why someone didn't just drive him. I mean, come on, what is this? But 
but there's this independent spirit that we want to accomplish on our own. So he takes off again, and it's five miles an hour, and he's got to go all the way to Wisconsin. And one particular night, as he's camped alongside the road, has a fire going. A young lady who was hitchhiking saw the fire and walked over. She wasn't able to get a ride that day and began to talk to him. And he discerned as he talked with her that she was pregnant and running away from home. She didn't want to experience home life and what they had to say to her. She'd made a mistake. She wasn't married. She's running away. So they sat by the campfire. Alvin picked up a twig and handed it to her and said, I'm going to tell you the same story I told my kids growing up. Can you break this twig? And she said, well, certainly, and snapped it. He reached over and gathered up a handful and put those together and said, can you break this bundle of twigs? And she tried and said, well, no, I can't break that. And he said, that's called family. It's called family. When life comes, when you're by yourself, your twig can break. But in the bad times, the difficult times, we need to be together. And I would say in community, in the family of God, with other believers. Well, she decided to sleep there by the fire. He went back in his little trailer, got in his tent, went to sleep, woke up in the morning, she was gone. But laying by the fire was another bundle of twigs tied together with a ribbon thinks she got the message and went back home. What should the community of the church be? It shouldn't be, listen to me, it should not be a place we run from when we've made a mistake. It needs to be a place we run to and find community. Amen, I believe that. It should be a place that we run to because our hope for the future is going to wrap around our community relationships with each other. Our hope is stronger in community. So chapter 3 starts this way, that the Father lavishes us with love. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. It's an interesting term, the term lavished here, and it's really not uh, uh, the, the most accurate translation from the Greek language. King James gets it closer when it says, um, of what country instead of lavished. Now, let me explain to you why that matters because there are, there are literal translations and then there are dynamic equivalents. And the NIV tries to take the meaning of the text and explain it in a way that you'll understand it. So when the literal language says, of what country does this love come, we would not really understand that, but we understand what it means to have love lavished. And that whole expression in early Greek literature of what country meant that love, that whatever that was, was lavished on you. Where in the world does something that wonderful come from? Where in the world do you experience that kind of depth and greatness and joy? And in this text, I think it captures it really, really well. The idea being the Father lavishes love on us. He doesn't barely love us. He lavishes love. Now, I want to use an illustration of what it means to lavish love. My wife and I both know how to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. How many of you know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Her idea is when you spread the peanut butter you should be able to see the texture of the bread under the peanut butter. 
when you smear the jelly, it's there to color the bread, not to be tasted. I will not eat another peanut butter and jelly sandwich for a while, I'm promising you. When I make one, the peanut butter should be at least half as thick as a slice of bread. And the jelly should be as thick as the bread. And then when you put it together, it ought to squirt out the sides. I, I lavish my bread with peanut butter and jelly. Her bread experiences peanut butter and jelly. My bread is lavished. Are you getting what I'm saying right now? We need more than just a smear of God's love. He doesn't give you just a little taste. What does he do? He lavishes you with peanut butter and jelly. He lavishes you with love. We've not experienced just a little taste or a little touch, but an overwhelming tidal wave of the love of God. And whether you feel it or not, whether you believe it or not, whatever your circumstances are, doesn't matter. Oh, what a country that the Father would lavish us with his love. In the middle of your trial, when it seems like there's no hope, remember that our hope isn't based on the circumstances we experience, but the truths that we hold to. And when you believe that Jesus is coming back, it gives an entirely different picture to everything that you're dealing with now because this isn't all there is. One of these days, a trumpet's going to sound. Come on, church. One of these days... The skies will open. We'll be caught up together with the Lord. That gives me hope for the future. And to be called children of God. I didn't join a club. <laughs> I didn't join a church. Think about what that means. Do you know how big God is? He's not like us. He is huge, powerful, omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent and he doesn't say you are a Christian he doesn't say you are a wonderful God fearer you are a wonderful religious person he says you're one of my kids <laughs> I was lost and undone and on my way to hell and Jesus made me one of his children with all of the benefits and identity and character and blessing of being in the family. And some of you need to see that. You're not a child of the Smiths or a child of the Joneses or a child of the Pilchers. You are a child of the King. His royal blood now flows through my veins. And I who was wretched, now I can say, thank God, I'm a child of the King. That's his lavish love. He brought you into his house. I may let you come in for a visit. <laughs> it's not likely I'm giving you access to my accounts. He didn't let me just come for a visit. He didn't give me a spare room in the basement. Come on, somebody. He made me a child of his. That's how much he lavishes his love on me. 
understand, that's why the world doesn't understand us. The world doesn't get us. <laughs> How can you be happy? Why don't you worry? Why aren't you afraid? Why aren't you angry? Why aren't you broken? Why do you believe the things you believe? Why do you stand where you stand? They'll never get it because the answer is simple. I've been lavished with the love of God and I'm a child of the King. Hallelujah. And they don't get it. They don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to them because they're children of the devil. They've not experienced love. The world is poverty stricken and experiencing real, real love. Think with me for a moment, would you? When you look at the children of God and the children of de the devil in this world, there's a whole psychological impact that is, um, that is ongoing and affects even adulthood among children who didn't experience love in the home growing up. It's a whole psychological um, paradigm that builds around those who didn't experience the safety and protection of a healthy household and experience love. Let me list for you just some of the things that go with that. You know what marks a child who's not experienced love when they were young, left a gap in their life? What marks them? Number one, they're marked with a lack of trust. See, you can't really trust without love. Without love, you don't trust anyone. They have poor emotional intelligence because good emotional intelligence builds on a healthy relationships. What is emotional intelligence? Being aware of what's going on inside you and being able to read what's going on around you. They have <coughs> poor emotional intelligence. Third is the fear of failure. They're <coughs> Excuse me, that's not COVID, it's my allergies. Every spring. <laughs> but if you want me to, I'll stand back further. Fear of failure, because it's performance-driven, looking for that acceptance. They tend to enter into toxic relationships because that's all they've ever known. They're insecure and have attachment disorder. They can't believe or connect to anyone else because of all their brokenness. They deal ongoing in adulthood with depression and anxiety. And seventh is an oversensitivity. Everything's about them. That's what the world looks like through the lens of lacking love. That's why the world doesn't understand us because we see it through the lens of lavished love, of being children of God. We shall be like him. Now, when the Father lavishes love on us, verses 4 to 6 tell us that there is a spirit of lawlessness, that sin is lawlessness, and if you've had love lavished on you, that lawlessness will not be what marks you. Those who have been lavished with love want to be like him and want to be with him and walk with him. And some of you aren't going to like what I'm going to say right now, and I've learned to be okay with that. But someone needs to say it, and it needs to be said more. Do we have issues in this country that need to be addressed? Yes. Is there racism that needs to be addressed? Yes. I've come to a whole different understanding of what the term white privilege really means in talking with some uh, uh, black Americans to understand what that means to them and, and take it out of the political. Just listen to someone's story and hear what they have to say. But I'm going to tell you, when someone has experienced 
the abuse of racism and then mobs gather together to break down retail establishment and steal big screen TVs? That's not, that is not a remedy. That's the spirit of lawlessness. Because what happens in any social society structure is that one act of lawlessness breeds additional acts of lawlessness and there's a spirit of lawlessness in the, in the world. And so here's how the world responds when there is a lawless act or a hurtful act or a painful act, that lawless act releases them to the spirit of lawlessness for them to strike out in anger and in ungodly and evil because that's all they know how to respond. They don't have a foundation to build from. Unloved life breeds lawlessness which demonstrates your separation from God. Living in sin means you don't know him and have never seen him. And I want you to notice he doesn't say, I am a son of God. It's collective. We are sons of God. We are sons of God. You can't be lawless. Now, why does that even matter? Why would you throw it here? Because in the text, but do you know how the Antichrist is described? As the lawless one. And there's a spirit of lawlessness that even impacts the church. And... Um, I want to be really careful here and cover up the details to protect the guilty. But there is an Assemblies of God church somewhere in Iowa that I felt like we could come alongside and help in a particular situation. And here was the response of the leaders. We didn't need your help before. We don't need it now. And nobody's going to tell us what to do. Do you know what that is? That's the spirit of Antichrist. That's the spirit of lawlessness. No one is going to be over us. Come on, listen to me right now. Because it gets into the American church and we misappropriate American independence with biblical relationships and we carry that over into a sector that without being aware, we begin to act in a lawless fashion that I don't have to be accountable to anybody. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And that aligns you with the Antichrist and that spirit of lawlessness will rise at the end when people cast off authority and cast off accountability and are oversensitive and insecure and striking out at everything which will set the stage for the lawless one to come who will channel that ungodliness and give it an impetus that it's never had before. And we have to remember, we are not of the spirit of the lawless one. We've been lavished with love. Come on, is there anyone in the house this morning? We've been lavished with love. We are the sons of God. Right alongside that then, you have to understand that the enemy of our soul, while God lavishes us with love, that the enemy seeks to lead us astray. Verses 7 to 15 are about a spirit of deception. The enemy is going to seek to lead you astray. The devil is a deceiver and false Christs and prophets abound more now than they ever have. The ungodliness and the mistrust and untruths are being propagated at, a, at an unbelievable rate. Are you ready? You may not see this the way I do, but that's all right. 
You can preach it your way. I read an article from some years ago that a researcher at Yale believes that nearly everyone in the United States can trace his or her ancestry through Charlemagne. That everyone in the U.S. of European descent is related through Charlemagne. And then another study said that Confucius, uh, Nefertiti, and Socrates are now your ancestors. That everybody on the planet comes through those three. Now just think about that for a moment, would you? That's Yale. That's higher learning. But what happens if I say, I agree with you. We come from a common source. But it wasn't Charlemagne. It was a man called Adam and a woman called Eve in the Garden of Eden. And you're marked as a fool. What I'm saying to you is, there is an attack on the very foundation of faith that you can say the same thing, but if its root comes from scripture, you're a fool. And if it can be replaced with something else, that becomes wisdom. It's time for the church to rise up. Now, genetically, can you show a connection to Charlemagne? Probably. I'm not disputing that. I'm just simply saying to you that there are two different worldviews that determine who we are and where we came from. There's a spirit of deception in the world getting us to believe untruths. You cannot ignore that some seek to deceive everyone they can. And listen to me, if the devil can get you to believe a lie, he can defeat you at any time he wants to if he can get you to believe a lie. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Now just stay with me a little bit. I'm not, you know me well enough to know that I'm not looking for demons behind every bush. Most places, most churches, most believers, demons don't have to mess with because we trip ourselves up. That's a whole nother message. But I read that phrase some years ago. Obviously, I've read it many times since. Doctrines of devils. Does that mean an overemphasis with devils? Well, when you really delve into the Greek text language, it really means doctrines that devils have inspired. Think about that. How would that happen? They don't write books. Well, I'll tell you as a child of God what I know is true about me. There are times, Pastor Larry, you know exactly what I'm going to say, when I'm reading scripture and I hit a spot I don't really know where to go. And then I'll research and I'll look up what others have said and I'll spend time trying to find solutions. But there's that moment when I'm meditating on the word of God and I hear the voice of the spirit of God helping me understand what I've just read. I'm going to preach that when that happens. Well, if that's true, don't you think it's also true that when ungodly people are trying to interpret Scripture, and there are many, many of those that have religious ordination in other organizations, that there's another voice that whispers in their ear 
to help them understand how in the world do you read scripture and make Jonathan and David gay lovers? That's a doctrine of devils to pervert what is holy. What I'm saying to you is that I think the most active work of demons in our world today isn't in bizarre manifestations, but is in, rather in the realm of doctrine. Because if he can pollute our doctrine and get us to be deceived and believe things that aren't true, then he can do with us what he wants at any time. And we need to guard against that because the enemy is out to try to deceive you. And you need to be aware of that. In verses 7 to 10, there's confusion over sin and righteousness. Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. How can you tell the difference between the children of God and the children of the devil? Not by their proclamation, but by their lifestyle. It's not about what they say. It's about how they live. And the ungodliness in our world will try to tell you that right is wrong and wrong is right. And I'm telling you, church, we're living in that world more today than we we ever have morals and values are being turned upside down we're being convinced on every hand that what the bible says is wrong is no longer wrong and has to be reinterpreted and what is right is no longer right and has to be reinterpreted and how will you know before you look at what they say look at how they live because the soul that sins is of the devil there's an enemy that seeks to lead you astray. He's warning us about being deceived by sinful lifestyles. Now, but they're such a good person. They're so likable. They do such good things. Listen, look at their moral lifestyle before you listen to the principles and precepts they proclaim. Is that making any sense at all? Because those that live ungodly will lead you into ungodliness. And there's nothing more dangerous than something that is mostly true. So... Uh, this cure to the enemy leading us astray is found in 11 to 14, and he repeats it again. He makes the emphasis again that we need to love one another. This is a message you've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain who killed his brother. Don't be like that. Sin will cause you to lose your hope of Jesus' return. Sin will cause you to hate your brother. Sin will cause you to withdraw from community. It'll cause you to diminish the value of community. And hating one another will drive you out of community. <laughs> I, <laughs> what causes people to quit going to church? Usually it's because somebody made them mad. Somebody hurt their feelings. Something didn't happen the way they intended. And I just want you to see that some, you've got to stop, stop, stop. And before you make a decision based on the impact of the moment, remember, Jesus is coming back. Come on. 
And for us to keep that hope, we need to learn to love one another. I had a moment some years ago, and I know this may shock you. I hope it doesn't ruin anybody this morning. But sometimes people annoy me. (laughs) And somebody had said something really hateful to me. And that's just hard for me. But God gave me a picture of them laying in a casket and said, do you want this to happen before you make this right? Do you want to stand at their funeral and see them in the grave carrying the grudge that you're carrying? Is that making any sense to you? We need to love one another because there's something bigger at stake than your momentary pain. Now, you can't reconcile with everybody, but you can forgive everybody. You can release their debt. You can do those things. I'm just telling you that in the body of Christ, though, we do have to be reconciled. We do have to make things right. We do have to live life together. And the protection against deception is the hope of heaven and our relationships with each other. So now watch how this comes together. We are lavish. I'm glad that we're lavish with the love of God. And the devil is working to lead us astray. How do we harmonize those two? (laughs) I don't know. Let's just end. Because the third part of the chapter says the believers lay down their lives for each other. Oh, oh, that's not what I wanted to hear. I'd rather kill the deceivers. Verse 16, our model is Jesus. Jesus laid down his life. This is how we know what love is. How do we know what love is? Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. When? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When they spit on him and cursed him and nailed him to a cross, he said, Father, forgive them because he manifests for us what real love looks like. It comes from your heart freely expressed to others. And Jesus' death on Calvary shows us what real love is. We lay down our lives for each other's. He becomes and is the model of love. So then verses 17 and 18, we lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now watch this. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. So let's back up and look at this. If they are in need, in other words, if there's someone around you that's in need. You see, in America, we tend to quantify need differently than a biblical definition of need. Because the Bible says if you have food and clothes, learn to be content. It doesn't mean, say, if you have food and clothes, car and, uh, you know, and, and and fishing poles and shotguns and all of that, be content. So he's not saying that you have to bring everybody up in their lifestyle. But if there's someone in the church that through no fault of their own, they're not reaping the consequences of their actions, and you find out that their cupboard is bare, and you don't do something about that, 
other than call the church. I mean, <laughs> church has got to do something. Well, when you become part of the church, because what just happened here? It got really quiet. When you see a need, you're to respond to that. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Because in community, you'll know what's happening. I remember a lady that, that joined our church, the first church I pastored, and she came in to talk to me, and she said, Pastor, you've got to help me. I've got a son, and uh, it's a grandson that she was taking care of living with her. And she said, we don't have any money for milk. And I said, well, let's talk about what you're doing with your money. How much do you spend a month on cigarettes? How much do you spend a month on beer? You know what? If you just cut that in half, you'd have money for milk. You can do that in community. Community. Builds people and helps them. And I'll give out of my own pocket if the need is genuine. But there's a community that identifies that and makes that real and visible. And you can understand how to come alongside them. Would it surprise you if I told you she quit coming to our church and went to another church that just helped her? Now, I was going to make sure her son had milk. Don't misunderstand me, but let's find a way out of the hole, not dig it deeper. Let's find a way out of the hole. If you can see a world in need, however they got there, and it doesn't touch you, how dwells the love of God in you? Because love isn't something you profess. It's something you do. The pastor of the Bible college we went to said this over and over again. Love unexpressed is seldom felt. It's got to be communicated indeed. And he does it. He says if you love, then you're going to give. You'll have a generous heart. Measure of love is seen in actions and in truth. Look at verse 18. I don't want you to miss this. 17 and 18. Um, Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And it's important that those flow together. I can't tell you how many times I've had someone come to me and say, we'd like to come to this church, but you have to love me the way I am. Sorry, I will love you in deed, and I will love you in truth. Deed without truth is perversion. You have to love in action based on truth. Is that making any sense? I'm not saying to you, you just go around and solve all the world's problems because some of the world's problems are intended to bring people to repent and to come to surrender before Jesus Christ. It has to be both. Not just flippantly giving everything away to help the poor, but in deed and in truth and in the context of community. Sacrificial love builds community. Now, it all wraps up to this. Look at verse 19 to 24 in this idea of laying down our lives and our confidence. In verse 19, he talks about a really important concept about if our hearts 
condemn us. This is how we know we are belonging to the truth and how we set our hearts to be at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. What does he mean? There, there are a couple of things you have to understand in this whole development of the body of Christ and the difference between condemnation and conviction. Let me give you a simple way to understand the difference between demonic condemnation and biblical conviction as the body is walking in love and in truth. How do you know what the truth is? Condemnation comes to make you feel bad and shows you no way out. The conviction of the Holy Spirit will make you feel bad and show you a way out. When it is simply backing you in a corner to crush you, that's the devil. Jesus doesn't work that way. He is bigger than your condemnation. And those of you that are living in a place of feeling horrible about what happened in your past or some mistake that you made or some terrible thing that happened, he's bigger than your condemnation. Get it off your back and come to Jesus because he will show you a way out of that to a place of victory. You don't have to dwell there. He's bigger than false condemnation. And conquering that builds confidence and answered prayer and tells us that this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we do everything, if we do things, ask in accordance with his will, we know that he hears us and he grants the desires we have of him. Comes through answered prayer. So to throw all this together, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. We receive what we ask for because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Okay, watch. When you're living that way and he hears you and answers prayer and you've defeated condemnation, it gives you confidence and a hope for the future and a trust that he will return. And it wraps up this way. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. It's supernatural revelation. So let me throw these together. God has lavished his love on you in community by bringing you into the body. The devil wants to lead you astray by separating you from the body. How are we going to overcome that? By laying down our lives for each other, loving in action and in truth. And that comes from prayer that God answers. What will give you hope? I'm going to suggest two things. Looking for Jesus to come and knowing that he answers your prayers. When he's answering your prayers, you know he's coming back, and then you can love the people around you. Now, I know it's a real complicated progression here in this text, but I want to keep it simple. He lavishes love. The enemy wants to lead you astray, and the safety is laying down our lives for each other. What is that? It's community. And out of that will come an abundance of hope. See, this is a place I run to, not away from. This morning, if you're in a place where you don't have hope, one of the marks that's happening in our culture right now is a, is a rise of depression and despair. And where does that come from? It's because a pandemic didn't have to, but for some people it destroyed their community. And it's time to call back to that. 
Let's reconnect. Let's get involved in each other's lives. Let's not lay that aside. Because what will happen in community is that our hope will be purified because we're headed the same direction. Heads bowed and eyes closed. No one looking around. I just, I just feel it heavy on my heart right now. You're in a place that you would describe it as despair without hope. I'm not asking whether you're a Christ follower or not. Because if you're not a Christ follower, you need to give your life to Jesus right now. Admit you're a sinner. Believe Jesus died for you and confess him as Lord and you'll have new life in Christ. It's that simple. But there's just been a cloud of despair over your head. I just want you to know there is a place of hope. <laughs> Incertainties. And without raising your hand, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot. I just, if that's you, as Pastor Nathan leads us in worship, would you just open your heart and let the love and life of God shine in? Could you just experience for a moment how much he has lavished love on you? Don't listen to the lie of the devil. He's lavished his love. Let's stand together and take just a moment, could we, to just worship him together. Let's worship Jesus together.
the mountain, in the valleys, there was Jesus in the shadows of the alleys. There was Jesus in the fire, in the flood. There was Jesus. for too long in compromised community. And I'm, I'm not trying to tell you to be reckless or careless. I'm not even going to comment about what's happening there. But I had a... <laughs> can you get a prophetic word from a two-and-a-half-year-old? <laughs> Out of the mouth of babes. I've been able to get rid of this. My two-and-a-half-year-old grandson called me yesterday, I think. Poppy, when are we going to wake up the train? And I've thought about that. And I'm saying to you this morning, it's time to wake up the church. I know we've been in a hard time. And I know people have died and they've been really sick and people are still getting sick. But I'm telling you, for the rest of your journey on life, people are going to get sick and people are going to die. And I'm not minimizing that at all. Not at all. I'm just saying, church, some of you, it's time to wake up. And some of you that are watching online, I'm glad you're joining us online. And if you're in Singapore or you're in Alaska or you're in... Latin America, stay with us. But if you're in town, it's time to wake up your train. It's time to wake up the train. So I'll be giving rides right after. No, I'm kidding. But that just became a, a, a mantra. It, it's like it spoke to my spirit. So I'm saying to you, in community, we have full joy. In community, we have perfected love. And in community, we have a purified hope. Let's reclaim that. If under the oppression of godless communism, the church has maintained community, 
I'm saying to you, the doors are opening. I'm not telling you to not be careful. I'm not, need to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Don't take this wrong. But I'm just saying, will you help me? Let's wake up the train. Let's wake up the train.